from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I mean, I guess it's also what's kind of great about writing is that there's always this sense of um, you've taken something from zero all the way to, to 100. Um, but no, Miggy is not a sociopath. She's just a kind of alive, sparking little girl. All these, these kind of central core questions that even though we think of them as being adult questions, they really begin to um, brew in the mind of young children. I'm Sarah Fenske. Two seven-year-olds forge a fast friendship in 1973. Margaret Brenneman is better known as Miggy. She is loud and reckless and goes to public school. Ellen Gallagher is careful and polite and goes to Catholic school. But they are inseparable until suddenly they are separated. Marissa Silver's new novel, The Mysteries, paints an indelible portrait of each girl. But more than that, it paints a portrait of St. Louis in 1973. Miggy lives in Maplewood. Ellen lives in Webster Groves. And through their stories, Marissa Silver tells our story. And she joins us today. Marissa Silver, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, Marissa, what made you interested in writing a novel about seven-year-old girls? Oh, uh, seven-year-old girls, I guess it's a fascinating age to me because it's an age where you can both believe in magic and also know something about the real world and how things work. And so I wanted to kind of capture a transitional moment, particularly for one girl, Miggy, the the main character of the novel, as she, as sort of reality begins to dawn on her and as she begins to put together some of maybe the harsher, more harsh realities of life. But it's also a, you know, it's just a wonderful age where you can believe in monsters and also understand um, that monsters don't really exist at the same time. You can hold both those things in your mind. So, Miggy, she's such a great character. She almost leaps off the page for me. Did you draw on a particular person in real life as you were creating her? No, um, not at all. But Miggy, not only, I'm glad she leapt off the page, she leapt into my imagination in the same way. She just kind of... um, you know, I began to conjure this seven-year-old girl, and I knew that she was going to be sort of unruly and s- someone who was pushing at the limits of being seven, seven, who didn't sort of accept the fact that she couldn't do or say or or be all the ways that she wanted to be. Um, and then Miggy just kind of appeared for me, and I just knew her instantly. I understood her energy and her frustrations and her how she loved and how she fought. And, you know, and she was really a sort of a complete character, which is not that that doesn't happen very often for mm-hmm. me. I was surprised to see, and I shouldn't really put any stock into what people say on Goodreads, but every now and then I, I browse it. And I saw somebody who'd reviewed the book there suggested she was a budding sociopath. And that was not my sense of Miggy <laughs> at all. And and I'm wondering since, hey, I have the author here, did I miss some clues that you were throwing out here? <laughs> No, not at all. Um, You know, but the great thing about writing a book is that people read it differently, you know, and people bring to it their own associations and their own life experience. And that kind of is the complete book. But no, Miggy is not a sociopath. She's sort of an alive, energetic, um, kind of fierce little girl. And I think we meet children of all stripes. And, you know, I think in this moment in time, we tend to medicalize 
the way kids are a lot more mm-hmm. than people did in 1973. You know, we tend to try to diagnose and and label. Um, I don't think that was happening to the same degree back then. Um, but no, Miggy is not a sociopath. She's just a kind of alive, sparking little girl. Yeah, it feels like today um, somebody might try to say she has ADHD, but my sense is this is a girl who she's going to be just fine. Uh, She might be a difficult child, but she's difficult in a good way. I am not hearing. Oh, oh, uh, Marissa, can can you hear me? No, it sounds like we suddenly... I'm not hearing anything. Marissa, we're going to call you right back. And I think Marissa cannot hear us. So, oh, unfortunately, we're going to get her right back. Um, We're talking today to the novelist Marissa Silver about her book, The Mysteries, um, a book that I enjoyed so much. And this is a a great story of two seven-year-olds and the friendship they form in 1973 St. Louis. We're talking about the character Miggy, who's sort of the main character here in the book, um, and her friendship with another uh, seven-year-old named Ellen. This book is also a lot about St. Louis, and that is something we're going to talk to Marissa about the minute that we get her back. Uh, In the meantime, while we're looking for her, I'm going to let you know about something we're planning to do on Monday, something that we want to hear from you. This has to do with working from home. Um, If you've been working from home during this pandemic, we want to know how you feel about returning to the office. And if you're the boss, do you think working from home has worked? You can leave us a voicemail with your first name and where you're calling from on our dedicated voicemail line. That's 314-516-6397. Again, that voicemail line is 314-516-6397. I understand Marissa Silver is back. Yes, can you hear me? I am back. Sorry about that. Technical difficulties of some kind. I tell you, you know, the the remote aspect of radio in this pandemic, um, it it does us in. But here you are, and that is great. And so we were talking about Miggy. and the fact that uh, this is this is not a budding sociopath. This is just a normal seven-year-old girl. I also want to talk no, about. I mean, she's a yeah. yeah she's just a, a vibrant, unruly girl. So, in addition to painting the portrait of these two girls, of Miggy and her friend Ellen, you set this novel in 1973 St. Louis, and the city did not feel incidental in any way. This felt like St. Louis was a big part of what this book was about. What made you decide, as somebody who's based in Los Angeles, to set a novel here in St. Louis? Well, you know, I think probably the main reason to set it um, in the Midwest at all is because that's where I was a child. I wasn't a child in St. Louis. I was a child in Ohio. But I think that my sense memories and my my feeling for, for that period of my childhood is very much colored by my life in, in Ohio. But in fact, um, St. Louis is a city that I've grown to know and love over decades because it's where my husband is from. And so I've spent an enormous amount of time in the city and become fascinated by its beauty and its architecture and its history. And so it just felt like a really fertile place for me to uh, set this novel. So we should mention your husband is Ken Quapis, who's actually been a guest on this show. He wrote a, a very good book of his own about, about being a director. As During your time in St. Louis um, with Ken and visiting his family, did you end up picking out specific homes and specific buildings for some of these characters? Um, you know, I, I think I, I, I made a couple of trips to St. Louis while I was writing the novel, and in that time I um, actually did drive around to the particular neighborhoods I was writing about and, and chose, you know, homes that looked right and then just, you know, included them in my imaginary universe of St. Louis. So, yes, I found particular places, but I didn't, you know, then, then blended it with my um, 
imagination. So there's a passage in this book that just felt so spot on, both for the characters you're writing about and for the city of St. Louis. And um, I'm hoping that you can read an excerpt of this for us today. This is a part where it's telling us about Julian, who is the father of Miggy, uh, the little girl who's kind of front and center in this story. Uh, Marissa, if you could take it from there. Absolutely. Julian um, uh, runs a uh, hardware store that his father began. So this passage picks him up when he's driving some equipment that he's renting um, over to the person who's rented it. As he drives the pressure washer over to the Illinois side, he feels affection for the blighted city where he's lived most his life. When he was Miggy's age, St. Louis felt no bigger than his patch of front yard, its breadth no greater than the distance he stood from his upstairs neighbor, Ben Mandelstam, when they tossed a, a baseball back and forth deep into summer evenings. The world grew larger on Sunday afternoons after Julian was released from the purgatory of Hebrew school and bar mitzvah preparations. He would ride in the backseat of the Blue Plymouth while his father drove the family through the city. Maurice Brenneman kept his window down even in winter so that he could more readily point out the Fox Theater or the Copper Dome of the old courthouse with pride, as if the city's civic amplitude lent stature to his life. Julian knew about Yankee Stadium and Wrigley Field, but it was impossible to imagine any venue more majestic than Bush Stadium or a team worthier, worthier of his allegiance than the Cardinals. Their losses inspired a faith much more meaningful than any he was taught about by the rabbis because... As his father told him, when the cards were coming from behind, at any moment they could turn it around. If his mother came into the living room while he and his father were watching a game, Julian would beg her to leave, knowing that her sheer presence and her unbearably pointless commentary would cause his team to lose. He believed in all this, in the centrality of his city, in his cardinals, in his father and the small hardware store on Olive that declared the importance of his family name to anyone who drove by and saw the sign. When, when, what Julian remembers from the long-ago rides was the unified color and texture of so many brick structures fixed in his young mind, a palpable idea of home. The fortress-like factories made him understand that St. Louis was built for industry and for people who made things. If his father's claim on the place was not enough to convince Julian that St. Louis shouldered the great weight of history, then the brick did the job. That's just a beautiful passage, and I feel like it, it describes the St. Louis I know so well. Um, you're also talking about belief in that part, this belief in your city and the belief that you can almost control a baseball game by your superstitions. I'm wondering if that ties into the title of the book, The Mysteries. I, I think of the phrase, The Mysteries of Faith. Well, I love that you say that. And, um, you know, the mysteries are various, and I think that the title, what the title refers to is sort of the the, the unanswerable questions that we all have to confront um, in our lives and the ones that, in particular, Miggy is beginning to confront through the course of this novel that have to do with life and death and faith and, and disbelief and all these, these kind of central core questions that, even though we think of them as being adult questions, they really begin to um, brew in the mind of young children. So, yeah, I think belief is, is one of those questions. You know, Ellen's uh, family is, is um, Catholic and very faithful faith-based, and Miggy's family um, is Jewish, but they don't, they don't practice their faith, and so the girls are both sort of trying to understand what God means or what He doesn't mean. So yes, all those mysteries. 
So in addition to sort of these questions of faith, one of the great themes that feels like it's running through this book is the sense of the city being hollowed out, the white flight making suburbs out of one, what was once farmland and how that affects the people who are left behind and, and the people who choose to leave. How much was that on your mind as you were telling this story? Um, very much. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, a lot of the history of the city um, has to do with, or at least in the 20th century, has to do with um, what happened during that period when, when so many people moved to the suburbs and the outskirts and even across the river. Um, and, and you know, that sense of a hollow core, which, you know, now is obviously much more vibrant and, and, and has come back to life, I think in the 70s was very much there. And I think, you know, all across this country, I mean, in 1973, there was a recession. And, and I think, you know, inner cities, post-industrial, you know, cities that no longer could rely on their industry were really suffering in that same way that St. Louis did. Um, and so it sort of, and I think I chose it because it, it sort of provides an emotional backdrop for this, um, this story, this kind of sense of decline and uncertainty. Um, is, is what is the historic backdrop for the story and, and certainly informs the lives of the characters in it. So Miggy's dad, Julian, he has this hardware store in University City, and he refuses to sell to a developer, even though the rest of the block is moving out. What do you think makes him so intent on staying in the city when everybody else seems to be picking up stakes? Um, emotion. I mean, I, as much as he has, you know, difficulties with his father, I think that the the store represents for him um, a kind of way of being fixed to a place that makes one feel secure and that makes you feel like you know who you are. Um, so I think that there's there's that going on for him, and I also think there's just kind of a, a more political rebellion against the sort of defacing of the small mom and pop shops that that happen so often when these developers come in and, and swoop in and, and kind of at a race an area. But mostly for him, it's just a, it, you know he's a he's a guy who's in a in a very uncertain place in his life, especially um, in regards to what happens in the story. And I think that, that the one thing he can count on is this, this location that his father began that is sort of the locus of his life. There's another great passage in here uh, that deals with that. I'm going to just read this this couple paragraphs here. You write, he has no illusions. One day he'll give up. He imagines what it will feel like to walk away, the wreckage that was once Brenneman and Sons at his back. He imagines Miggy and Jean by his side, standing at the landing. He can describe to Miggy a time when St. Louis was nothing but a small settlement by the river. He can paint a picture of how it grew from cobblestone streets into this place that teeters in the hopeful, hopeless balance between decay and renewal. Maybe one day she'll be old enough to understand how the city's heart beats, fractured and fractious, just like his own. I just love that passage. And, you know, Julian is a character who dreams of escaping, but he also feels so rooted to this city. Miggy, she's someone who you seem to understand inside and out. Do you think she'll be equally rooted to St. Louis? Oh, that's a question I don't know the answer to. You know, people often think about, like, well, what happens after a story ends? But it's something I actually never think about. I think that the story exists in the moment that I've written it, and then I kind of don't extrapolate beyond that. So I don't know. I think I think Miggy's going to, you know, I think no matter where Miggy lived, she would bust out of there. I think <laughs> Miggy is someone who's going to be, she's going to be restless in her life. If I had to guess, I think there, there's going to be a restless part of her nature that, that makes her sort of go beyond where she's been. 
Maybe some of the dreams that her parents had that end up being unrealized, these are things she's going to realize for herself by hook or by crook. Yeah. I, I also I mean, love... Her parents, you know, they, when they... I'm sorry, go on. Oh, no, please go on. Oh, I just say what you're referring to her parents when they were younger, they you know, were growing up, growing up in the 60s and they had great ambitions to lead sort of more bohemian lives and, you know, the coastal cities they were reading about, and they ended up back for a number of reasons um, in the in the area that they grew up in, and Julian certainly taking over his father's business, which is not anywhere near what they fantasized about. And, you know, I'm kind of interested in, I'm interested in, in how people become who they are and, and, and how we sort of make make a, not, not just how, it's not about settling, it's about an acceptance of how, how we become the people that we become. And that's kind of what they're going through as a couple, is trying to square the fantasy that they once had about their lives and the reality of their lives, and, and then trying to capture what is magical about that. So one of the other things I wanted to make sure to ask you about today, um, the, the relationships between these daughters and their mothers were just so well told, and they just hit me to my core as someone who's the mother of, of a couple daughters. And in researching you, I, I learned your mother had been a pioneering director, and this was at a time when so few women were able to do anything in Hollywood. Did you draw on your relationship with her when you were writing about these characters and how they felt about their mothers? Um, I was not at all drawing on my relationship with my mother. It was a very different relationship that I had um, with her than than the girls have with their mothers. But it's certainly something, you know, I think about a lot. Is you know, what does it mean to be a mother? How do how do how do a, mo- a mother? How does a mother and a child impact one another? You know, a parent doesn't only impact a child; a child impacts a parent. Um, and it's a subject that I've returned to in a number of different novels, and it's something that, you know, is just sort of endlessly rich and fascinating to me. Hmm. Um, both, of the char- both of the little girls have very different relationships with their mothers, um, fought for different reasons. Um, and, and, you know, I guess what I'm interested in is sort of understanding the, that, that love is, is not just this blanket positive thing, that it's filled with all sorts of ambivalences and emotions, and that that's what love is. So this is your seventh novel uh, that you've now released to the world. Um, does writing get easier as you continue to write more fiction? <laughs> that is the great question. You know, it doesn't, which is so galling. That I is mean, galling. In certain ways, yes. Because I have, you know, I, I have more facility with my craft. I've practiced it more. I've, I've become more sophisticated, I think, in certain ways about thinking about it. But every story requires its own way of being shaped and told. And so in a funny way, every time I start writing something new, it's almost like I have to reinvent the wheel all over again because, you know, no two stories are alike. They don't want to be told the same way. They don't, you know, want to be shaped the same way. So, I mean, I guess it's also what's kind of great about writing is that there's always this sense of um, you've taken something from zero all the way to, to a hundred each time. And so that that's kind of satisfying, although also hard and frustrating. I guess I, I still, my brain is still stuck on the fact that once you're done with your characters, once you finish the book, you're really done with them. I mean, you've created this whole world. You get it to a hundred. You're really able to close that door and walk away and, and move to the next story. Yeah. I mean, I think when I conceive of a story, it sort of has, it, it's bounded, you know, I wanted to write about these people during this particular moment in their lives. 
and, and I didn't choose to write about them at another moment in their lives for a reason. I, I, you know, for me, the emotional nexus of their story happened right then. That was, you know, what happened in this novel is the reason to tell their story. So I don't think that I, you know, there's nothing, there's, in my mind, I'm not inventing dramas for Mickey at age 20. It just, that's not what's compelling me. What compelled me was what happened to her at age seven. Hmm. So that book is The Mysteries by Marissa Silver. Sounds like there will be no sequel, but this was a wonderful book. I really enjoyed it. I think uh, everyone in St. Louis and, and frankly, everyone should read this book. So Marissa Silver, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so pleased to be here. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.